0: Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post World War II movies often follows this pattern Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood Spectacle, The French New Wave and Responses to the New Wave, Cold War Movies, Social Realism, Movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's Second Golden Age, New German Cinema, Third World Cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, The Rise of the Blockbuster, The Impact of Home Video, Corporate Synergy versus Independent Production, CGI, International Co Production, The Impact of the Internet, and Streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. First up in this idiosyncratic survey of movie history, Rome, Open City, and the Birth of the Atomic Age. Our background historical statement starts with the fact that World War I, running from 1914 through 1918, set a new world order for how Europe would be conducted from that point forward. In 1919, Benito Mussolini founds the Italian fascist party and leads his nation for the next two decades. In 1929, the Great Depression... World War II begins in 1939, and to some partisans, it is the extension of World War I, which never really ended 21 years before. In 1943, an Italian movie called Ossessione, is released, and that initiates a new movement in the arts, specifically in Italian movies, which we now retrospectively call Italian neorealism. World War II ends in 1945, the atomic age begins simultaneous to that experience, and in 1946, an Italian movie called Shoeshine wins the first Academy Award for International Feature. These different historical traits set the foundation for what we're talking about now. Roberto Rossellini's Rome, Open City, which was released in 1945. To backpedal just a moment, we really should recognize that the atomic age initiated by the bomb blasts over Japan, concluding the Pacific War of Theater of World War II, changes the nature of reality. Suddenly, Warcraft, that is, the atom bomb, creates an existential crisis. Not only are we capable of destroying one another with fisticuffs, knives, short arms, long arms, bombs, missiles, etc., we can extinguish whole civilizations with the birth of this new tool. And while that's a specific military tactic that has not fortunately been used since 1945 on a civilian or military population, it does color the movement of the world from 1945 onward. As the reigning superpower when World War II concludes in 1945, the United States alone has this one tool and holds that one tool over the rest of the world for a period of years until other nations catch up. The point of emphasizing this is recognizing that the existential crisis that the atomic age initiates throws shadow over virtually the whole human experience and every civilization on Earth. As this relates to movies in the post-war moment, we realize then we can either turn towards the global spectacle of worrying over global destruction, i.e. the nuclear bomb becoming an ever bigger and more dramatically damaging tool, or we become ever more restrictive, isolated, and local, considering very specific stories, ideas, and issues of interest to individual people versus the whole population. Italian neorealism may not directly be connected to this idea of the atomic age, but it very centrally turned inward towards the nation of Italy and its ongoing concerns during the 1940s as it emerged from the cloud of fascism. All of the arts responded to World War II as an interruption to pre-war norms. One of the ways this was made evident in the world of movies is the advance of certain technologies, in particular, smaller cameras that were lighter weight and easier to use, which became part of the civilian population's ability to tell stories of itself. We also see economic collapse in nation after nation, particularly those nations that participated in hot war, had actual combat performed on their grounds, very often destroying existing infrastructure and thereby limiting the capabilities of any government of any level to help its people do anything. This necessarily includes artisans within given countries, and here we're narrowing our focus into Italy. What do we get? Well, we arrive at a concern from the early 1940s that the Italian industry, which had once been one of the world's leaders, had virtually collapsed into both a rather boring and staid old people-led set of novels turned into movies, which younger folks didn't particularly like, or else propaganda propped up by the occupying Nazi government, which helped Benito Mussolini Control his nation and its colonies, but ran him as a puppet regime and his country as a vassal state. This means that young people coming up in the 1930s and 40s who had aspirations for creative expression realized that the nature of their industry was not going to be very open to them. And at the same time, new tools which had been brought over by the likes of American GIs meant shooting on location. This sense of going on location and using small portable cameras, often without synchronized sound, meant that amateur performers, everyday people, props of the now could be used on screen to make the screen's entertainment all that more interesting to people of today, especially people like in Italy who had come under the boot of an occupying force, the Germans, and then were reflecting on their newfound freedoms from 1944 into the post-war moment. This also means that these filmmakers were focusing on everyday life concerns, the difficulty of finding good water, the difficulty of getting running electricity, the difficulty of raising children, of finding work, of filling one's belly. While these concerns are everyday concerns of the world over, they were generally not part of Italian cinema's focus before this moment in the middle 1940s. Indeed, they weren't generally the focus of any cinematic strategy before the middle 1940s, with some exceptions. Along with these different influences, the neorealist movement also emphasized the value of long takes letting a camera linger over a particular scene filled with performers and props doing their activities without relying on editing to fit together the pieces like a puzzle. This long-take mentality lent these stories to a kind of humanistic appeal, meaning they examined everyday life of everyday people in everyday circumstances and let those people say or perform for themselves what seemed to be most important to them now, in the streets, especially of cities that had been the site of conflict during the war. What this results in, as an artistic choice built upon a technological framework of lightweight cameras, is that the movies lack overt sentimentality. They're not pulling on your heartstrings to make you cry. If you have a hard reaction, a difficult emotional response, that's only natural because reality exhibits traits and experiences that can be heartfelt and difficult for each of us to know. The point of these movies, though, is dressing up a fictionalized planned storyline that's often executed in a very documentary-like way, on the literal streets and in the apartment buildings of cities up and down the length of Italy by a group of filmmakers who very often knew each other, collaborated closely, indeed sometimes were married or close friends, who were helping prop up one another's work by participating as crew members, as cast members, and helping each other over the line. Rome, Open City, is divided into two parts, chapter-like as in a book. We fuse in each half of these chapters on different activities of different Italians and different Germans trying to defeat one another and live out their everyday lives as healthfully as possible. But the main action centers on two key characters, both of whom were played by professional actors. The first role is played by Aldo Fabrizi, who plays Don Pietro Pellegrini, the parish priest of a section of Rome. The other key part is a woman named Pina, played by Anna Magnani. These two are the magnetic poles that the other performers, many of whom were amateurs, this being their first film role, orbited around. The problem is Pina, who is an out-of-work factory worker, and she's pregnant, and is out of wedlock. She is a widow with a young son and a young lover. She plans to marry him. She feels doubtful about whether that's acceptable because this is a Catholic nation, and she's seeking the approval of Don Pietro to marry her and help her back into the fold of the church and help her back into the folds of matrimony. Her husband-to-be, Francesco, played by Francesco Granjacket, is involved with people who have an underground press advocating for rebellion against the German occupiers. This means that Francesco often brings home friends who are involved in the rebellion. Pina attempts to help her would-be husband. Her would-be husband attempts to help his friends. Some of those friends have relationships with the German occupiers. And Don Pietro goes place to place, person to person, trying to keep the peace. In the end of the first part of the movie, the apartment building where Pina lives among many dozens of families is raided by the Germans who are seeking some of these partisan revolutionaries. They don't capture who they're looking for, but they do take Francesco away. Pina runs after the truck to try to catch up with it and free him, and she is shot dead by German soldiers in the street. Francesco! Francesco! End of part one. Part two is the reaction to that experience, that murder in the streets. And what it finally builds to is the fact that Don Pietro becomes involved with covering up the activities of these Italian revolutionary partisans, is finally drawn before a firing squad and executed in front of a group of boys, including Pina's now orphaned son. Lots of good news, this movie, Rome, Open City, but a few things to pull it apart and emphasize why it is so important to the history of movies and why it is that we hold it up as a singular work of art. One, it has a lot of material inside of it that was censorable both to Italian authorities during the middle 1940s, but definitely once exported to the shores of the United States beginning in 1946. Let's just examine for a moment the character Pina, played by Magnani. She is impregnated, out of wedlock. She is already a mother of a young son, and she's out of work. These things mean that she is sexually active without an old man, her husband, lording over her life. These are things that were unacceptable and remain so in certain areas of the Catholic doctrinaire, but it was certainly not acceptable on screens in the United States in the middle 1940s, where an enforced ritual of censorship practice meant that we were always affirming the rights of the family, meaning a husband or father-led household with an intact mother and children born from that union. Here, we don't have that. Further, We realize that Pina is an out-of-work person. She is on the public dole, receiving assistance from the local government where it can provide her bread. She has no other source of income. She is effectively an unemployed kind of a beggar, beholden to the teat of her local society. She also has a son who's a bit of a 'er ne'er-do-well because he doesn't have a reliable school program to go and be involved with, so he falls in with juvenile delinquents. Pina can't quite keep up with this because she must stand in bread lines each day, help her husband-to-be out, seek the favors of Don Pietro and others. It is a society of impoverishment, and we tend not to spend our time looking at that. Further, Pina is eventually shot dead in the street. We watch this happen on screen. And while there's an excess to it, it certainly gets our attention when it finally happens. Further, we see certain sequences where Pina, almost alone among the characters on screen, is singled out for that Hollywood three-point lighting system in close-up, where she has lovely lighting in certain indoor sequences in her apartment which stands in contrast to when we see her on the street or roaming Rome with her friends and Don Pietro having conversation under natural lighting conditions. This means we see her apart and as an improved character technically and aesthetically over the other characters we meet in this movie. Further... She wears a shirt where we often see she's not well supported. We're aware of her changing curvy body through her pregnancy. And those things are placed front and central, not fetishized, but made a natural part of the way we see and experience a pregnant woman in the world. But then jump forward to the conclusion of the movie. Not only is Don Pietro repeatedly pointed out as a kindly man working hard to help his flock of parishioners in his section of Rome as a priest, we watch him bend the knee before the Lord inside of his sanctuary. He is eventually gunned down, first by a group of marksmen drawn from the Italian fascist service that helps the Germans hold down this area of town, but even this group of soldiers can't bring themselves to shoot dead a priest. So what happens? Well, one of the local colonels, a German, steps forth with his pistol and shoots him point-blank in the back of the head. I don't know, in the history of movies up to 1945, whether there were other murders of religious figures on screen to conclude a movie. But this movie certainly ends that way, punctuating its various notions of what the post-war moment looked like with a very dramatically and intensely difficult scene to watch. It doesn't involve the bloodshed we often see in network television today, in the 21st century, but for 1945, this movie was certainly a real shock to the system. Pulling back a few notches, let's remember that Rome Open City appears... In 1945 in Italy, it becomes something that's distributed through the world by 1946 when it lands in the North American shores of the United States. And at that point, the filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, as one of the singular leads of this movement of Italian neorealism, starts to export the mode of how they made this movie as a template other filmmakers in other circumstances can use. What does this mean? It means that filmmakers with access to... To interesting locations, whether they personally own these locations or can wander to them in public, populate it with cool or interesting looking people, using these portable tools to tell interesting stories that people haven't seen before at very, very low cost, can meaningfully describe a human condition which is not fantastic, which does not involve aliens, which does not involve giant musical numbers, but tells the story in an immediate way of struggling people after a terrible war. This made possible a swing upward in national cinemas throughout Europe, South America, Africa, Asia, in colonized spaces of former European powers beginning to crumble in the post-war moment, and in areas across the earth that had previously not enjoyed a relationship with moviemaking. Consequently, Italian neorealism punctuates the basis of a more democratizing impulse in movie craft and movie celebration, where we don't just look at globally obvious, beautiful people doing extraordinary things in extraordinary places. We can instead turn inward and look at our own people doing things that are very specific, very local, and may not be valuable to people across the border in the next country over, but if done on the cheap, that won't matter. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boopity doo. <laughs>